Welcome to the podcast from Gateway Baptist Church. You're listening to a message from our Ormo campus. Find us at gatewaybaptist.com.au if you'd like to connect with us as we seek to change lives by following Jesus in our community, our nation, and our world. When something really matters, we make a plan. I love planning holiday road trips. Does anyone else here like planning holiday road trips? Does anyone else get as much joy in the planning as in the tripping? Like my family, and usually those we road trip with, care nothing about planning, which is awesome because it means that every road trip we go on, we go where I want and we do what I want. It's the best place to be. You should take an interest in planning your holidays. It works out well for you. But I love planning road trips. I've got some long service leave coming up in a couple of months and it's taken a few weeks and the plan is to do a trip through Tasmania. Now, that's a great plan that depends on many things right now. I'm not holding my breath and everything is refundable. But I just keep finding myself lying in bed at night looking at places in Tasmania that I want to go. Now, the problem is unless you plan, you won't get there. And I don't want to look back and think, I wish I had known because if I'd known... I would have done things differently. I love to plan road trips. Some of us know in our world we we have to have really good plans around how we use our money. And we work really tight budgets and we plan out the year and we look ahead at what all the costs are going to be and we know that if we don't plan, we're not going to keep enough on the side to do some of the things that we want to do, like go to Tasmania on a road trip. I found that this year. I've had to keep a very tight budget because I've got five kids and they're expensive. They're all eating sausages and bread. I found all the places where you get oysters and lobster. It's going to be a great trip for me. But you have to plan. Some of us run businesses, and you know that if you just turn up and hope for the best, that can be a recipe for disaster. Some of us have just got lucky, or some of us just have a knack to be able to do things on the fly. But for most of us, without a plan, things get messy. Jesus even says when it comes to your faith, Don't just step into it and and not have thought about what it looks like, what the cost is going to be. He says this in Luke 14. Suppose you want to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. There's a number of monuments throughout this part of the world that we all drive past and think, I wonder what was intended for there. For the first five years of this church, there was a round building on the hill, on the roundabout that everyone used to say, I wonder what the intention was for that, but nothing seems to be happening. Now, obviously, it's been sold and it's turning into a thriving industrial estate. But Jesus says, if you're going to build something, you sit down and you plan it out and you think about, can I afford this? Is it worth even starting? And he says, it's the same with your faith. If you're going to follow Jesus, there's a cost that follows that. It's something you should consider because the deeper you get into the things of God, the deeper you're going to recognise the cost that it is for your life. You see, when something matters, we need a plan. Yet so often when it comes to the things that matter the most, I reckon many of us fail to have a plan. We, We stumble into some things and we don't think intentionally about what we want to get out of it or what we want to put into it or what kind of life we're going to build. This whole House Rules series is moving towards a uh, a peak moment in three weeks' time. It's Grandparents' Day on the last Sunday in October. So right now, get that in your mind. Think about if you're a grandparent, bringing all your kids and your grandkids 
Or if you want to invite your grandparent or your parents to church, do that. It's a great Sunday where we honour those in our midst that are grandparents. But this year we're going to talk about legacy because what's your plan to build a legacy in whatever family story God has put you in? And the challenge of speaking to some of this in a context like this is every single one of us has a different family story or background. But the question is still the same. What legacy do you want to build? What's the legacy that you want to build? I think some of the things that matter the most are the things that we fail to plan for most intentionally. Next week, I want to, I'm going to speak a little bit into parenting. And can I just say right from the outset, I'm not on this stage speaking into this because I've got it all together. Hang out with me for five minutes and you'll work that out. I'm on this journey as much as you, and that's where my opinion doesn't count, but Jesus' opinion does. So we're going to look at the Word over these next couple of weeks to see what God would want to say about building great legacy into our families. We're going to speak into parenting a bit next week and how to be intentional in building a plan to build the family that you want. Today I want to speak a little bit into marriage. And as I said, don't all tune out just because that's not your story. Because I know some of my illustrations aren't going to touch everybody. But the principles today are godly principles that he calls us to apply to every relationship. Some of us here today are married. And this, this message is going to speak very practically into principles that are going to affect and transform your marriage. There's others here today that aren't married but will be one day. I I want you to take a hold, take notes. If you're young, take notes today about some of the things that you should carry into your married life. There's others here that aren't married, may never be, may never be again. But these principles are about how we relate. And they're about how God calls us to be in relationship with others. But let me speak into marriage for a few minutes this morning. And to do that, let me take you back to the start of my story. Here's a photo of me on my wedding day. Look at that good-looking young, well, that look, look at that good-looking young fella. Hopefully it comes up in a minute, but three weeks' time, my 20th anniversary. You'll all goo when it goes on the screen, I'll figure that. 20 years' time will be my 20th wedding anniversary. Chrissy and I met on the side of a touch football field when she saw a fit young fella running around in a pair of red Baywatch shorts and thought, I've got to find out more about that fella there. Actually, I have no idea what happened that night. She was about 50 metres off the side. She wasn't having a great time. And her flatmate, Rebecca Hopkins, who's here today, dragged her to touch football, even though Chrissy had zero intention of playing touch football. Look at me. The hair. Chrissy had no intention of playing touch football and I wasn't the kind of guy that would actually go out of my way to go and talk to a girl. I was a little bit awkward. Well, not awkward. I was just, I just can't, couldn't read, you know, the interest of a female. That ignorance has served me well in life, but uh, I had no idea. But for some reason, this particular day, I was captured by that beautiful woman there and walked to the edge of the touch football field and struck up a conversation. Well, one thing led to another and a few years after that, we decided to get married. Now, I don't think there's more a crazy, intense, self-absorbed time of life than building up to a wedding. I mean, you plan everything, don't you? You plan the budget, you plan what you're going to wear. You know, for for the blokes, it's a much simpler exercise, but 
You know, I know for Chrissy, she was having dress fittings. She was making sure her bridesmaids had dress fittings. She was choosing the jewellery that she was going to complement, the dress and the shoes that were going to be comfortable for the wedding day. You plan the food from the afternoon tea you serve at the church through to the dinner that you're going to give your guests. You employ a photographer. You build a guest list. I mean, that was a really hard thing. I, I'm from a family. Our extended family is two, my parents. Chrissy's extended family is about a 1,000. So who do you decide who's favourite and who's not? So you whittle down the guest, the, the guest list. You talk about where you want to get married. You talk about when you want to get married. You even go down to the building the right playlist to play. Back in my day, it was burning the right CDs. Today, it's about building the right Spotify playlist. You think about who's going to be allowed to be given a microphone to give speeches. You even practice the dance. Well, some people do. I didn't. But I know some blokes that have been taking to dancing lessons just so that their wedding dance looked right. You know who you are. You're too ashamed to admit it now, aren't you? And then you do this other thing. At least in our church, we tell everyone if they're going to get married or one of the pastors from our church is going to marry you, we encourage you to go do some pre-marriage counselling or education. You see, weddings take years of thinking and weeks of planning and many of us go into debt just to make the event happen, then the day arrives, it all happens, and marriage begins. Yet our planning ends. And so many people walk into their marriage putting more effort into the wedding day than they ever choose to put into what comes after. We haven't worked it out at all. We haven't thought about intentionality and we haven't thought about investment. You see, in our weddings, the model suggests that all the planning says that great romance builds great marriages. But we know that's not right because after the wedding day, romance is challenged by reality. The spectacle of the wedding day is replaced with the mundaneness of the everyday. And the nicely spoken crafted vows are replaced with the reality of what it is to love in sickness and health, richer and poorer, better and worse. You see, I reckon we plan for the rich, better, healthy bits But how do we plan for the sick, poor and worst parts that we speak on our wedding day but we don't actually want to believe are going to be true? See, the outcome from this series, and you download the Life Group book, is we want to challenge you to build a plan. And so for those of you that are married here today, we'd love you to go away and sit with your spouse at some point in the next week and talk about how you are being intentional in investing in your marriage. And there's two questions that I want to ask about. And it's this. What do we need to do to be intentional in growing our marriage? And what do we need to do to invest in our marriage? See, I get the privilege of doing pre-marriage education. I'm not a counsellor, so I don't call it counselling. I call it pre-marriage education. But most couples that, like people that have a little bit more life experience usually don't come to me. I just get to do pre-marriage education with young couples. And I'll tell you, if you just heard everybody's story leading into marriage, Everybody's story is perfect and romantic and wonderful and their marriage is going to just be awesome because there is no one else on planet Earth like them. But I'll often say to a couple, hey, we can talk through some really important principles. We can identify some things that might be pressure points. We can speak to some great ongoing strategies for you to take into your marriage. But I actually reckon sitting down and processing this with someone is going to be more important for you in one year, two years, five years. 25 years' time than it is today. Because when reality bites, that's when it all kicks in. So the challenge of this series is to build a plan. 
But before we do, I want to look at what the scripture has to say about what kind of relationship God wants us to build. And I'll say us today, again, intentionally, because I've been married 20 years, but I've still got so much to learn, and in some areas I've still got no idea. Because there is no perfect marriage, but God has got some perfect principles that we can all learn from. If you've got your Bibles with you, why don't you turn with me to the letter of Ephesians in chapter 5. I'm going to be reading from verse 21. It says this, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband's the head of the wife as the church is, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, So also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. For he who loves his wife loves himself. After all, people have never hated their own bodies, but they feed and care for them, just as Christ does the church. For we are all members of his body. And for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. When I looked at that passage, let me just have a moment of, of honest vulnerability. I wanted to find another one. I just thought it'd be way easier to preach today and find another passage on marriage. And why? Because in our culture, this passage is loaded with some significant culturally sensitive thoughts and ideas. Actually, this passage, if you go on Google, is one that opponents to faith or atheists or people that want to discredit the Bible and the church use as part of their evidence about the backward nature of God and his thinking and his understanding of humanity. You see, people quote this passage to say that faith has no idea about gender equality, gender roles and women's rights. And let me just address the elephant in the room. Verse 22, wives submit to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. I understand the reluctance of people to see goodness in this passage. And I want to say I think it's sadly the application of this passage that's done the damage. Because when we take this passage and we contort it, and it's used as as a reason or as an affirmation of the misuse of power that some people have used it for. Some people use this passage in their struggle for authority in their relationship. Some people use this line as as the bottom line go-to when they need to exert their will over another. Some people use it as a justification for claiming authority when a consensus is not agreed on. In other words, if we can't come to consensus, I'm going to pull this out and say, The Bible says. And in a world that we live in that's marked by violence towards women, 
oppression, the misuse of powering, and the layering of a society into a form where some are given more status and rights than others, I can see why for many this passage is problematic. But ironically, that's the same world into which Paul writes when he writes it. Just seen from a different perspective. You see, this is a passage that Paul writes that isn't affirming the culture that he's a part of, but actually challenges it and paints a glorious new picture of family life as God intended it. The Greco-Roman world into which Paul writes this passage in Ephesians is one where women were treated as property. It's one where men ruled. It was a heavily patriarchal society where men ruled in every sense, where infidelity was right, where there were loveless marriages everywhere that were kept respectable for the sake of building the family line, but where blokes didn't love their wife or show respect or commitment to their wife. They did as they pleased. And Paul, into that world, writes this passage to paint a picture of something much grander. Now, we don't have time today to unpack all the theology because people interpret that passage in different ways. And we don't have an hour today to do that and look at all the different angles by which people look at the Greek origins and the words that Paul uses. But into the Greco-Roman world, Paul wants to paint a picture of something wonderful. You see, it's really important, and here's a note about how we read the Scripture in every sense. It's really important when we read the Scripture that we don't just take the one verse, but we look at the context in which it's written. And let me give you the context of Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 to 24. Ephesians 5, chapter 1 says this, and he speaks it to all of us. This isn't about marriage. This isn't about how we do marriage. This isn't about husbands and wives. This is to the people of God. He says this, Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love. Just as Christ loved us, and listen to these three words, gave himself up. And gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. See, before we pull the passage apart, let's look at the context that Paul wants to say to all of us, because this is a principle I want us to grab today. Let's walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. So when the application of this passage is used as a justification for power, authority, or a misunderstood social hierarchy, it's not what God, uh, Paul, God or Paul intended. Because Paul opens up this whole narrative with his overarching statement that as people of God, the way we relate to one another, the way we care for one another, the way we deal with one another is through self-giving love. You want to know what that looks like in your friendships? If you want healthy Friendship, build as the principle into those friendships, self-giving love. If you want healthy relationships with your kids, those that are parents, build into that self-giving love. If you want a healthy marriage, start on the foundation of self-giving love. If we want to be a healthy church, if all of us come with the attitude and the stance of self-giving love, this place will be the most transformative place found on planet Earth. And Paul says, as dearly loved children, take Jesus' example and then he wants to unpack the rest of the passage with Jesus' example, which starts with self-giving love. He then gets a little bit more specific a little bit further on. And just before we get to the, uh, the start of the passage I just read, Paul then brings in his second overarching principle, and it's this, verse 21. So submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit 
to one another. So lean in with self-giving love. And now learn what it means, every one of us, to submit to one another. Why? Out of reverence to Christ. So Paul's overarching framework for anything now he wants to say specifically is self-giving love and mutual submission. Who should submit, Paul says? All of us should submit to one another. In other words, Paul's statement that overarches everything that he speaks specifically is one of mutual submission. And why should we submit to one another? We do it as an act of reverence to Christ who gave himself up as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And this is what Paul wants us to build any other argument that comes out in this passage under because he then does go to break that down. And what he does here in the rest of Ephesians, he actually adopts a very Greco-Roman world way of actually addressing specific groups of people. See, there's a whole bunch of writing that dictated the way that households would operate, that spoke to husbands and wives and parents and children and slaves and masters that were all groups within the society that Paul writes to the church in Ephesus. And so Paul now breaks it down. And he does it in a way that the people of the day would understand. And so he says this. Imagine this is his sermon. Okay, guys, this is what Christ would want you to do. He'd want you to learn to submit to one another. Wives, he wants you to learn to submit to your husband. He could have also said, husbands, he wants you to learn what it means to submit to your wife. Actually, he says something a lot more pertinent and stronger and more confronting to husbands when he breaks it down. He says this, verse 25, Husbands, this means you love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for it. So church, this is what I want to say this morning, Paul would say. In reverence for Christ, learn to submit to one another. Wives, that means learn to submit to your husbands. Husbands, what that means is you should love your wife as Christ loves the church and gave himself up for her. Now, blokes, I want you to think deeply on what Christ did for the church. He was beaten. He was ridiculed. He was stripped naked. He was hung on a cross. He was killed. He forgave. He showed grace. In other words, he emptied himself of everything because of his love for his church, because of his love for you. Husbands, you want a great model of how you should be in marriage? Empty yourself of everything in love for your wife. Go this week and get Philippians chapter 2. Print it out and hang it in your bedroom because this is the model for marriage that Paul wants to give us. Because he says in Philippians chapter 2, well, this is the model of Christ. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And Paul would say, read that, blokes. That is the model for how you should treat your wife. You see the problem here? It's not about power. It's not about advantage. It's not about hierarchy. It's not about who's right. It's not about who gets the final say. It's about a competition to self-emptying love. 
You want the healthiest marriage you can have? Take the example of Jesus that didn't consider equality with God something to be taken to his advantage, but emptied himself and became nothing. This is the model of love. I mean, both statements in our culture could be seen the wrong way. When Paul wrote this, it wasn't people saying, man, we've got to question the writings of the scripture around what it says about women. The front page of the paper would have been what the scriptures had to say about the role of men. Because suddenly the role of the man was being challenged to not being one of authority, power, do what you want, treat people the way you want, misuse your family the way you want. But no, 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 the picture that was given to blokes in the first century was this. No, there's a whole new model for how you do life and how you do marriage. And it's the model of self-emptying love. It's a race to the bottom, not a race to the top. It's a race to the bottom. How can you serve? How can you love? How can you give? How can you sacrifice? Because that was the model of Jesus. I I mean, it's probably good for us that Paul chose it in the order he did because in the same way that the verses above when they speak specifically to wives have been dragged out of context and used inappropriately, so the verses spoken to husbands could have been because what's encouraged of the husband is to empty yourself, to subject yourself to the worst and to die for your spouse. It's actually a great threat for the misuse of power if it's put in the wrong biblical application. So what's Paul want to say to us that are married and want to say to all of us about how we relate? Ephesians 5 verse 1, Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And then, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. You see, the world that Paul lived in and the world that we live in can take a passage like this and turn it into a power struggle. It's like the tug of war. And some of us see these passages like a tug of war. In other words, it's a battle over power. You've been in a tug of war race where you put all your energy into dragging the other person towards your side. All your energy and all your might goes into actually exerting power and influence and showing that you're stronger. Some of us can take a passage like this and, and think that, you know, in our relationships, it's just a great battle of will and authority and power. Like a tug of war, you know, we battle for power. We battle for our right. We battle for recognition. We battle for our will to be the right one. But Paul actually wants to turn the whole thing upside down. He says, I actually want you to do something really different. One, I want you to together submit yourself to Christ. Two, I want you to learn to submit to one another. And three, I want you to operate out of self-giving love and sacrifice. Imagine if the struggle in your marriage wasn't one of power, authority, will or selfish desire, but the problem came because you battled each other in trying to outdo one another in love, care, sacrifice and service. I mean, there's problems in that too, isn't there? What do you want for dinner? Well, what do you want for dinner? No, 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 really, tonight it's your turn. No, honey, it's your turn. Why are we eating McDonald's? Because none of us could make a decision. No. It's competing against one another in how to love and serve and sacrifice more for the other. Sounds crazy. But you want a healthy marriage? That's Jesus' model for how you build a healthy marriage. To take Christ's example of self-emptying, 
self-giving love. To forgive when forgiveness is not deserved. To show grace when you shouldn't show grace. Or to show grace when justice is that which is deserved. To choose to hold no record of wrongs. As 1 Corinthians 13 says, to be patient, to be kind, to choose not to envy, not to boast or play a game of one-upmanship against the other, not to be proud in your own achievements, to celebrate the other. For love does not dishonour others. Love is not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. And some of us need to take that into our relationships. We're experts at keeping record of wrongs. We've got that diary planted in the back of our mind that anytime anything happens, we go back to 1963. We remind our significant other of that moment that they said something or did something. You know what? Love keeps no record of wrongs. It does not delight in evil. It rejoices with the truth. It always protects. It always trusts. It always hopes. And it always perseveres. The Scriptures have been misunderstood in what it wants to speak into relationship. Because when we truly get a hold of the way God sees us relating with one another, relating with our friends, relating with our church family, dealing with people here that are different. Just look around for a moment. I could introduce you to someone who will drive you nuts. But guess what? I'll find someone to introduce you to who you'll drive them nuts. Why? Because we're all different. But that doesn't matter because the way God tells us to relate to one another is to outdo each other in self-giving love, sacrifice, service, and grace. And when we do that, we actually see things flourish. If you're married here today, go away and have a conversation with your spouse this week about some of the things that you need to start building in your marriage to bring intentionality in growing your marriage and to investing in it. Well, I said earlier, I sit with young couples and I tell them that um, after they get married, it's probably the time they should be talking to someone. But this crazy thing happens when we get married. We actually start to think, one, that our problem, nobody else has ever walked through in their life. You know, our problems with intimacy, no one else would understand that. Our problems with addiction, no one else would understand that. The fact that we don't see eye to eye on a whole bunch of stuff and, and you know, like we're feeling this pain in this way. No, no, we, if the enemy wants to use one lie in your life, it's that you're the only one walking through this. Because what it'll do is it'll cause you to shut down. And when you shut down, you don't actually let others come in. And when others come in, they can help you, one, normalise that you're not the only one, but two, start the road to healing. But, but we do this other crazy thing where we pay all this money to get married and then afterwards we go, oh, we, we should see someone, but the car registration's due. Need some new tyres. Kitchen needs renovation. Dog needs a tick treatment. Kids have got a soccer tournament. You know what we say? Soccer tournaments, tick treatments, car registration, and tyres are a more worthy investment than the one person God's called you to love on planet Earth deeper than anyone else. Build a plan of how you're going to invest in your marriage. 
so that when the challenging times come, you've got people around you to speak into it. And the challenging times will come. Everyone here that's married says, Amen, we know it, it's true. Everyone here that's not married says, not me, because I found the perfect person. I'll see you in my office in about five years' time. Sit down and build a plan. What are you going to do to intentionally grow? What are you going to do to intentionally invest? And all of us, no matter what our story, our background, our history, or our future holds, how can we be people that in all of our relationships take on the model of Christ, that operate out of self-giving love and learning to submit ourselves to one another? Can we stand together this morning? Lord, I just want to thank you for your word. It's transformative. And God, some of us here have just read your word and, and, and we felt like it just it, it demeans us or it, it puts us in a place that we just can't wrestle with. God, I want to pray that we see it in a whole new light, that, that everything you speak, God, is about us flourishing and coming alive and finding new life. And God, some of us today just need to get a hold of this idea of self-giving love and mutual submission in every relationship. God, that as you call us to love you and to love one another, Lord, that both those relationships flourish as we learn to do things your way. Hey, I just want us to sing. We've sung it already this morning, but I just want you just to take a moment just to consider what Christ has done for you again. Because He becomes the normative expression of all that we should be. He actually becomes the example of how we should relate, the example of how we should love, the example of how we should serve. And the cross was the ultimate picture of how far God was willing to go for you. So why don't we cast our mind for a moment back to Calvary. Let's sing these words and I'm going to come pray for us. We hope you've been blessed by this message. We are a growing family and everybody who walks through our doors is welcome. If you'd like to connect with us, please head to gatewaybaptist.com.au to find out more.